You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to The Corbett Report Podcast. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on the 13th day of December, 2019. Welcome to episode 369 of the Corporate Report podcast. Globalization is dead. Long live the New World Order. Now, long-term Corporate Report listeners will be well aware by now that the phrase New World Order is a political code word employed by the globalists for their dream of erecting a global superstate. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. There is a chance for the President of the United States to use this disaster to carry out what his father, a phrase his father used, I think only once, and hasn't been used since, and that is a new world order. Out of these troubled times, our fifth objective, a new world order can emerge. A phrase his father used, I think, only once. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order. And after 1989, President Bush kept said, and it's a phrase that I often use myself, that we needed a new world order. There's a need for a new world order. This would be the time because you really need to bring China into the creation of a new uh, 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 world order. Out of it came a new Europe, a new world order, a new consensus as to how life should and could be lived. Nothing less than a new world order. This is the pledge of the world's most powerful leaders, representing 90% of the global economy. I think a new world order is emerging, and with it the foundations of a new and progressive era of international cooperation. Let's get to a third story here, which is you were worked all weekend over in D.C. at the IIF uh, highlight. And when we asked you what the highlight was, we wanted to talk about it. You said the new world order. What does that mean? Oh, yes. Whatever does it mean, this baffling phrase, new world order? which I think George Bush said maybe once. (laughs) Yes, as much as the mainstream repeaters will feign ignorance of this phrase, it has quite a political pedigree going back at least a century to the post-World War I period of Wilsonian diplomacy where Wilson and his comrades went around promoting the 14 points and the League of Nations as the path to the creation of a new world order, which was the term that was specifically used in that context and has been used in the same way ever since, the creation of a new global order, which inevitably implies international institutional framework for uh, codifying the rules of international relations and making sure that everyone lives by global uh, governance. That's right, not government. It's not global government, guys. It's global governance. Of course, that is the phrase, and it's the phrase that pays, and it has been for a century now. It was used by Wilson, it was used by Hitler, it was used in the creation of the United Nations, it was used in the Cold War era, it was used after the Cold War era by Bush, and then by Clinton, it's been used by Kissinger and Soros and everyone else that you can think of. All of the globalists love to talk about the creation of a new world order. It is their pet phrase 
for their pet project. But I don't know if you noticed, but there are threats to the global order as it exists now that are coming on the horizon that threaten to destabilize this plan for the creation of a stable system of global government governance. Clearly the international liberal order that was ushered in by Europe and the United States in the post-World War II period is in a crisis mode and is certainly under attack. And countries like Russia and China, but also others, see this as an opportunity to carve out a place for themselves. Throughout Europe, Putin's Russia seeks to undermine the order. I think it, it has become increasingly clear in the last few years that, that China is not interested in, in ex joining the existing world order, but in fundamentally transforming it. Mattis warned about threats to the current world order. I think it's under the biggest attack since World War II, sir, and that's from Russia, from terrorist groups, and with what uh, China is doing in the South China Sea. Oh, that's right, all you globalists. You better run and hide because the bricks are going to get you. Yes, they're coming after your global liberal order, and they're going to destroy it. Destroy it, I tell you. Well, this is a meme that is being inserted into the public consciousness right now from a number of different angles, and we're going to approach it from one particular angle today. We're going to start broaching this conversation via an article by the Rothschild Economist, The Economist, economist.com. Uh, this is an article that was sent in by a listener, Kimberly, who thought it would be an interesting uh, article to dissect, and I agree. This article is under the headline, Globalization is Dead and We Need to Invent a New World Order, and it takes the form of an interview with Michael O'Sullivan, who is an author of a new book, which, caveat, I have not read, but I did read this, uh, this article slash interview, and his, uh, uh, his book is called The Leveling what's next after globalization? And in the beginning of this, they start by saying that he, he Mr. O'Sullivan, sees a multipolar world forming, but international institutions unprepared for this. And he voices worries about a world of low growth and high debt and calls for a world treaty on risk. So central banks only resort to measures like quantitative easing under agreed conditions. Let's stop right there. That right there is a fascinating little summary, especially the end part. Did you catch it? Calling for a world treaty on risk, so central banks only resort to measures like quantitative easing under agreed conditions. Think about the implications of that phrase. So, first of all, we have an economic reality, which I have stressed in especially many of my articles on the subject over the last several years, the economic reality is increasingly dictated by the central banks of the world, the Fed, the ECB, the BOJ, these massive central banks with their massive injections of liquidity that they've been doing in the era of quantitative easing have been dictating economic reality for the, the, the masses for at least the last decade, specifically since the Lehman crisis, this QE bubble that we've been living in is a bubble that has been blown by the central banks. And like any confidence game, if enough people believe in the con, then the con manifests in reality. So in a sense, yes, it is all baloney, all phony baloney magic money from heaven, but it's real in the sense that people believe in it. They still buy it. But there is a point at which people will stop buying that, literally and figuratively, buying into that system and into the monetary structures that have been presented. And 
I think the globalists know that that point is coming. It's almost, it's engineered into the system. There's no way to avoid it. So what better way than to position yourself for that crash and for what comes next? And that is why in the wake of the Lehman crisis, it was fascinating to see the London G20 in 2009, where the world leaders paraded and and propounded a new world order. And Gordon Brown gave his big new world order speech. And it was from the ashes of the Lehman collapse and from that G20 summit in London in 2009 that we had the formation of the Financial Stability Board, which you probably have not heard of because it is very much not talked about or not talked about very much. But it is an exceptionally important arm of the Bank for International Settlements, which is a bank which you do not often hear about, and yet is the apex of the world of international finance. It is the central bank of central banks, mentioned and talked about as such by Carol Quigley in Tragedy and Hope. And it, the Bank for International Settlements is an entire subject of study in and of itself, that I do hope to delve into uh, in much greater detail in the future. But the Financial Stability Board, which was formally put together, well, formally enacted at that London G20 summit in 2009 from uh, a financial stability uh, uh, partnership or whatever it was called before then. It had been founded in 1999, but it became the Financial Stability Board after that London G20 summit, and started producing white papers about such things as bank bail-ins. Remember the little bank bail-in trial run that they did uh, and with Cyprus in 2011, 12? Uh, you, you remember that incident because I did cover it at the time, and I did talk to Ellen Brown about the Financial Stability Board and its role in creating the bank bail-in infrastructure, the white papers that are then adopted by the various central banks around the world. This is global government by the back door. This is an internationally operating institution that's just writing white papers and making suggestions that then each country individually adapts for themselves and they adopt it into their own system by their own process. There's no global governance going on here. It's just that you know, Canada's doing it, Australia's doing it, and multiple other countries are doing it, all based on this same white paper that was developed behind closed doors in these secret meetings of this incredibly secretive institution. Nothing wrong with that. That's what this is pointing at when this article about the leveling talks about a world treaty on risk, so central banks only resort to measures like quantitative easing under agreed conditions. The coming collapse is going to be blamed on all of these central banks doing their own thing in their own interest. What we need is some sort of international institution that'll lord over it all and control it. So they're already positioning and prepping for the coming destruction, but this article gets more and more fascinating as you start to dissect it. And uh, they start by quoting Mr. O'Sullivan talking about what the future, what the world uh, he foresees looks like. He says, globalization is already behind us. We should say goodbye to it and set our minds on the emerging multipolar world. This will be dominated by at least three large regions, America, the European Union, and a China-centric Asia. They will increasingly take very different approaches to economic policy, liberty, warfare, technology, and society. Mid-sized countries like Russia, Britain, Australia, and Japan will struggle to find their place in the world, while new coalitions will emerge, such as a Hanseatic League 2.0 of small, advanced states like those of Scandinavia and the Baltics. Institutions of the 20th century, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Trade Organization will appear increasingly 
defunct. Oh no, oh, this is a horrible thing for the globalists. So, well, first of all, let's find out, as The Economist asks, what killed globalization? And Mr. O'Sullivan replies, at least two things have put paid to globalization. First, global economic growth has slowed, and as a result, the growth has become more financialized. Debt has increased, and there has been more monetary activism. That is, central banks pumping money into the economy by buying assets such as bonds, and in some cases, even equities, to sustain their international expansion. So, side note here, yes, the the narrative that the the, the, the monetary charlatans have been saying for the last decade that this whole economic boom, quote-unquote, of the last decade has been a complete never-never land of phony baloney liquidity being injected into the system by the central banks is now the prevailing orthodox normal opinion. Everyone holds it, and here's here it is being cited in, at economist.com yet again. So yes, the central banks, but look, the emphasis on all these individual central banks taking their own individual actions and pumping money willy-nilly to try to beggar thy neighbor, we all know where that's going. It's going to the crash. So how do you how do you deal with that? Well, let's let's consider that in a moment. But Mr. Sullivan continues, Second, the side effects, or rather the perceived side effects of globalization, are more apparent. Wealth inequality, the dominance of multinationals, and the dispersion of global supply chains, which have all become hot political issues. The Economist asks, Was the death of globalization inevitable, or could and should it have been prevented? Mr. Sullivan, One problematic factor here is that there is no central body or authority to shape globalization beyond perhaps the World Economic Forum or maybe the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. In many ways, the end of globalization is marked by the poor and inconclusive response to the global financial crisis. In general, the response has been to cut the cost of capital and not to tackle the root causes of the crisis. As such, the world economy will limp on, burdened by debt and in hawk to easy money from central banks. And then they go on to talk about the levelers from the 17th century and the British history and and why this is called the levelers and what this means and talking about obviously populism and the rise of anti-globalization movements and what have you and how this is all going to pan out, etc., etc. Please go and read the, the article in the interview for yourself so you can go and see this the, and hey, why not read the book? Find out even more about what Michael O'Sullivan thinks about the death of globalization and what's coming next. But I think you get the tenor of this, which is, of course, not just being propounded by Michael Sullivan, but as we've seen by many people, that the global liberal order as it exists and the idea of the new world order that the Kissingers and Soroses and whoever's of the world want to enact is under threat. It's under threat from the multipolar world in which these other players are coming up and asking for their seat at the table, China and India and Russia and all of these developing countries as well, they're all looking to get their finger in the pie of global growth. And they see that the globalist system of these outdated institutions, the World Monetary, uh, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the, the UN as it's existed to this point, etc. These, these are outdated institutions that don't really reflect the reality that we're living through right now. And this is the narrative, whether you're in the mainstream or the quasi-independent alternative media, is... Well, we are heading into the multipolar world, and the only difference that you ever see is between the people who say, well, this is terrible because it threatens our plans for a new world order, and the people who say, yay, now we get the new multipolar world. So, essentially, what is being proposed here is that the answer to the new world order is a new world order.
Our second story this week on New World Next Week, episode 372, Russia says new world order being formed. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov declared that the Western liberal model of society is dying and a new world order is taking its place. Lavrov made the comments at his annual meeting with students and professors because that's always an important part of disseminating propaganda out throughout society at his foreign ministry's diplomatic academy. Quote, the Western liberal model of development, which particularly stipulates a partial loss of national sovereignty. This is what our Western colleagues aimed at when they invented what they called globalization is losing its attractiveness and is no more viewed as a perfect model for all. Moreover, many people in the very Western countries are skeptical about it. Lavrov said, according to him, global development is guided by processes aimed at boosting multipolarity at what we call a polycentric world order. So, James, did he actually say new world order? Did he say polycentric world order? And either way, does it matter? It's still ringing that ringing that bell, blowing that dog whistle. Well, that's right. I mean, I'd have to brush up on my Russian and check the translation, so I, I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, polycentric or new world order, it's the same thing. And this is an important part of the story that often gets neglected. People rail against the globalization system that they see coming into view, Rightly so, because it's horrible and it's obviously planned by people with uh, nefarious uh, intents in mind. But then when you topple that, what's going to come in to fill that power vacuum? And perhaps the real aim is to get the thing that comes in to fill the power vacuum. Maybe that's people who are sophisticated enough to see where this is going can set up the straw man so that you topple the straw man and then they can present the real solution. That's how these things work on a higher order. And I think this is the way we need to uh, conceptualize the, the bringing in of the new world order. It's not going to be the, the big straw man that you're attacking. It's going to be the thing that they're going to bring in to solve that problem once the big destruction has taken place. So we, I've talked about it many, many times. The polycentric world order and the bricks are the savior's narrative is one of the, the narratives that have been presented to people so that they will eventually accept what will amount to a form of globalism. Not necessarily the globalism that people see right now, but it will be a form of globalism. But it'll be better globalism. No, it won't. It will be the same thing in the end. Yes, fascinating. These human wrecking balls of the globalist world order establishment, the Putins and Xi Jinping's and others of this rising multipolar world, have been at the forefront of calling for a new world order. In those words, precisely. I mean, there are no shortage of examples of this, not only the ones that we saw there, but several more that we could point to. Uh, Putin at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum in June of 2007, calling for a new economic world order. Or Putin at the Valdai Discussion Club in 2014, calling for a new world order. Or Putin at the Valdai Discussion Club in 2016, calling for a new world order to make the fruit of economic growth and technological progress accessible to all. Or uh, Xi Jinping calling for a new world order dominated by China and Russia. Or in 2009, at the uh, Bank for International Settlements, uh, there's an argument from the People's Bank of China governor that, well, we need to get rid of this dollar system, which, as we've seen from the Lehman collapse, is so inherently unstable. So what we need is some sort of new economic monetary system, that could be backed up by IMF, special drawing rights, for example. 
these types of examples, as I say, we could point to dozens and dozens of them from the last several years, the calling for a new world order. And you might think at this point, well, this is just a semantic point. Of course, anyone who's opposing the institutional framework that exists and that presumably we all here oppose to some extent or other is by definition calling for a new world order, aren't they? Well, actually, I will quibble with that distinction as we get towards the end of this episode, but let's just take that at face value. All right, anyone who's opposed to the system as it exists now clearly just wants a new system to be brought into place. And if you feel like you're in the pinchers of a dialectic here, well, I think you have the the right sense because the next logical question to ask is, well, then what kind of global new world order is coming into view in this multipolar world? Is it one that would be for our benefit? It has begun. China to bar people with bad social credit from planes and trains. China said it will begin applying its so-called social credit system to flights and trains and stop people who have committed misdeeds from taking such transport for up to a year. People who would be put on the restricted lists include those who found to have committed acts like spreading false information about terrorism and causing trouble on flights, as well as those who use expired tickets or smoked on trains, according to two statements issued on the National Development and Reform Commission's website on Friday. Those found to have committed financial wrongdoings, such as employers who failed to pay social insurance or people who have failed to pay fines, would also face these restrictions, said the statements, which were dated March 2nd. The move is in line with President Xi Jinping's plan to construct a social credit system based on the principle of once untrustworthy, always restricted, said one of the notices, which was signed by eight ministries, including the country's aviation regulator and the Supreme People's Court. Chinese authorities have come up with a new law that requires users looking to sign up for a new mobile number to consent to a facial recognition scan. Although the new law just went into effect, mobile users in the country told various media outlets that Chinese telcos have been trying to push customers to submit to facial recognition scans for quite a while now. According to the government, the new law is intended to help prevent fraud in a country that's heavily dependent on smartphones with mobile phone numbers often serving as part of a resident citizen's official identity. Putin signs fake news. Internet insults bill into law. This coming from the Moscow Times. Putin has signed a controversial set of bills that make it a crime to disrespect the state and spread fake news online. The legislation will establish punishments for spreading information that, quote, exhibits blatant disrespect for the society, government, official government symbols, constitution or governmental bodies of Russia, end quote. Online news outlets and users that spread fake news will face fines of up to half a million rubles. That's 22000 23000 in U.S. fiat dollars for repeat offenses, insulting state symbols and the authorities, including, of course, Mr. Putin will carry a fine of up to 300,000 rubles and 15 days in jail for repeat offenses. The Kremlin, however, denied this legislation amounts to censorship, hilariously pointing out that, quote, this fear of fake news, insulting and so on is regulated fairly harshly in many countries of the world, including Europe. It is therefore, of course, necessary to do it in our country, too, end quote, Kremlin spokesman said. So, James, I guess like all those evil Nazis who ran the eugenics ops, 
they all seem to say, you, you all right. I learned it by watching you. James. Yeah. Yeah. What about ism? And that's exactly the point. Just as not the false flag of 9-11 and the insulting, the, the resulting, <laughs> insulting war on terror, uh, war of terror, uh, was a blank check for every authoritarian regime in the world to, to say, hey, anyone who opposes us as terrorists and we get to deal with them the way America deals with terrorists. Well, now in this age where the fake news uh, specter has been raised. Well, now then anything that's against any authoritarian regime anywhere in the world is fake news and will censor and outlaw and fine you. And you have to be regulated and licensed by the government in order to say anything in the US and in Russia and everywhere else. It's coming everywhere. And here it is in Russia. So to all the people who think that Putin is the great savior of civilization and blah, blah, blah. No, he's another authoritarian thug like all of them. I am not team Trump. I am not team Putin. I am not team Abe. I'm not team Trudeau. I'm not team any of these thugs that are only in it for the power over other people. And uh, they're bloodthirsty tyrants, as far as I'm concerned. And I do not bow down or supplicate to any of them. They all are authoritarian regimes that will do anything in their power to stop opposition and stop people speaking freely. And here's another example of it. Spoiler! No, the world is not going to be so much rosier or happier just because there's a made-in-China stencil on the boot that's stamping on your face. Of course not. No one is talking about engineering a system that's going to be good for the average person. Even if such a thing was possible, engineering a world order that's going to benefit the average person. No, of course not. They're talking... Essentially, they're playing a game of risk. And the political puppets like to think of themselves as the players, and we're the little pieces that they're moving around the board, and, oh, let's whip people into Russophobia so that we can invade that little section and take that section of the board over, and, and things of that sort. Whereas the bankers who are pulling the political puppet strings know that this isn't a game of risk at all, it's a game of monopoly, and they're the bankers, so they win by default. <laughs> but that might be the, the deeper level <laughs> of what's going on here. At any rate, whatever way you choose to look at it, this isn't a game that's going to benefit any of us. Of course, of course not. That the only It's one of those games, the only winning move is not to play, as you may have heard, because this is a pincher movement of the phony dialectic. You get to choose this version of the world order or that version of the world order, and the, the secret is, of course, at the bottom, they're, they're all the same, which is something that I've pointed out many, many times in my work before. Let's start by, of course, directing you back once again to China and the New World Order, which I think is a seminal uh, episode of this podcast that's extremely important to internalize and understand so that we understand where the Chinese economic miracle of the 21st century came from. And uh, no, it was not some spontaneous product of the ether. No, there was a deliberate engineering of China to get to the point where it could be the boogeyman for the 21st century in the way the Soviet Union was engineered and, and aided to be the boogeyman for the 20th century. Uh, and I've written about this in multi multiple forms over the years in a lot of different articles and uh, videos and podcasts and what have you. Uh, talking about such things as the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. Remember back a few years ago when that was going to be the savior that was going to deliver us from the World Bank and International Monetary Fund and their shackles, or the BRICS New Development Bank, which was also going to be a rival to the uh, World World Bank IMF complex that puts 
nation after nation into debt servitude and bondage and then sells off to divvies up its uh, its resources and treasures and and uh, sells them to the highest bidder in the international markets no the the asia infrastructure investment bank and the new development bank the brics countries are here to save the world from these these imf uh, predatory monsters and then do you remember how immediately after the formation of the AIIB and the NDB, all of the various links, institutional links between those beasts and the World Bank IMF beasts started to be revealed? The fact that the, the first thing that happened was IMF uh, chief at that time, uh, Chief Crook Christine Lagarde, pledged cooperation with the AIIB and then the World Bank chief in June of 2015, the World Bank chief Jim Yong Kim issued a statement congratulating the AIIB on its for- formation and pledging to cooperate in a, uh, with an important new partner. And then in July, the new development bank president returned the favor saying that, no, we are not rivals. We are in, uh, complementary institutions. And then they actually signed an uh, actual cooperation agreement uh, later that summer. And then it turned out that the vice president of the BRICS New Development Bank that was going to be sticking it to the IMF man was also an executive board member of the IMF who went on to, of course, pledge cooperation and joint action and and on and on and on. This And the entire narrative, the entire narrative in the lead up to the creation of this AIIB and the NDB was, oh, this is going to completely change the game. These guys are going to... And then the first thing that happened was institutionally, they said, we're not rivals. We're completely cooperating. Let's sign every cooperation agreement. We're going to work together on joint projects. We are part of the system now. They got their seat at the table and that was exactly what they wanted. And they didn't want to change the table. They didn't want to upset the apple cart. They didn't want to upset the gravy train. They just wanted to seat at the table. Another exhibit that I've pointed to in my work in the past, remember China's SWIFT alternative and the engineered death of the dollar? I did write about that in the forecaster a few years ago as well, because you will recall that during the first round of Iranian sanctions several years ago, one of the things that happened is the U.S. pressured SWIFT, the internet interbank uh, communications network through which banks basically of, of each nation communicate with banks uh, around the world and uh, transactions happen between countries through the SWIFT network. And one of the first things that happened with the Iranian sanctions back several years ago, the U.S. pressured SWIFT, which is a completely non-political body and they're above politics and blah, blah, blah. And, oh yeah, the U.S. pressured the EU to put the, their thumb on SWIFT and delist Iran, which they dutifully did. And, of course, the the saviors of the new New World Order, all the multipolar world, all saw what happened to Iran and said, well, that's going to happen to us eventually, so we better create an alternative. So China stepped up to the plate and they, they created their uh, CIPS, I believe it's called, uh, their SWIFT alternative, so that they could make sure that banks around the world can communicate with Chinese banks and vice versa, and that they can continue to operate But that came with a little asterisk when that actually came about. And the little asterisk is that the the Chinese SWIFT alternative, the first thing they did, in fact, before I think they were even operational, they signed an agreement with SWIFT so that the SWIFT network would carry all their transaction data. (laughs) So the very first thing was to say, okay, so now we're just a subset of SWIFT. (laughs) That's the example of the type of alternatives that we're talking about here. Uh, Just a couple years ago, I wrote about the Belt and Road Forum for International Cooperation and, of course, all the money that China's been sloshing around uh, Eurasia and even further afield in Africa and other places to um, 
to create what they they have themselves turned the globalization 2.0 or the new new world order or whatever it's going by this week which is essentially again the the same vision the same system the same ideas it's just oh this time it's led by china it'll be so different and we saw we've seen china doing the exact same things as the imf world bank complex has done uh getting countries into some sort of debt servitude and then taking over their physical infrastructure as a form of payment and that's already happened with deep water port ports and other things besides so we're seeing this unfolding exactly in the way that globalization 1.0 unfolded it's just that there might be different faces on the leaders of this movement but it's the same thing and this is the fundamental point that we have to come back to because again people might argue well this is just a semantic point i mean you might quibble with the way this this particular vision of a new world order might might look or you might quibble with that one but at the end of the day, unless you like the, the current existing world order, which is falling apart anyway, then you must be for some version of new world order, mustn't you? And the answer to that is no. And that's an important point, because no matter what you make of that phrase, new world order, and whether you think it's a conspiratorial thing or whether it's just a bland description of the idea that we need some sort of structure to replace the one that's falling apart, it is comes, even in those three words themselves, at face value, it comes with an embedded assumption that I reject, and I think you should reject too, which is namely the idea that we require a world order and what everything that comes along with that, the global institutional framework that is a world order. Why do we need a new one? Why did we need an old one? What exactly purpose does the world order serve? And can it really even do what it says what it says on the tin? Can you have a world governmental institution or institutional complex that dictates uh, and engineers uh, the, 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 the system through which the entire world can function? Um, this impinges on a couple of points that I have made in the past, and I think they are they're worth going through, um, one of which, I made this point quite explicitly in a series of articles that I wrote several years ago for the International Forecaster and for the Corporate Report subscriber newsletter uh, that culminated in an article called How to Really Defeat Globalism, which I will link up in the show notes so that you can go and read it. But, you know, spoiler, the answer is not to rally around the UN flag or the BRICS flag or some other, you know, China will be the saviors or Russia will be the saviors. Uh, no, it, that's in fact exactly the point. In rallying around flags is exactly what gets us into the problem of regional cooperation bodies that then become international institutional frameworks that become global governance structures that eventually they just change the name and oh, it's global government. Um, maybe they never change the name, maybe they never admit to it, but that's what is happening. And I wrote about that quite recently with regards to the OECD and the formation of the global tax, which is the first, the, the, the essential cornerstone to global government. Once they have the global tax in place, it doesn't matter what they call it or what, uh, what body or bodies or groups or organizations are affiliated with what positions of power, the global tax mechanism is the cornerstone of global government and is already slotting into place. So, newsflash, global governance is here, 
or it's, it's very much on the doorstep, and uh, they probably won't come out and say that, but it is here. And so the question is just, who do you want in charge of that global governance structure? No, maybe I reject the very premise that we need a world order. But how can you reject that premise? There has to be some form of order. How can we ever develop anything unless there is a central controlling body to tell us how to, how to direct our relations? Again, if that point is mind-boggling to you, then I will suggest that you look into the work that I've done over the years on spontaneous order, which, again, is a concept that's difficult for people to wrap their heads around the first time they hear of it, but which really profoundly speaks to our experience as human beings. Uh, who, I mean, how could we possibly all speak English unless there was a central body that determines and dictates the English language and how to speak it? Now, there doesn't have to be a central organizing body for things to function. Humans, when they come together for the purpose of co cooperating, voluntarily come together, they, they will find ways to cooperate. That is the vision of a world that I want, and that isn't a world order. I do not want a new world order. I do not want the cre present world order. I do not want the multipolar world order. I do not want these political puppets, the parasites at the top who claim to represent but actually leech off the populations that they rule over to be the head of any sort of would-be self-proclaimed order. So, long story short, you will note in recent years, and you will see it, I'm sure, more and more in the coming years, this death of globalization narrative that is being propounded by Michael O'Sullivan and many, many others. But with that comes a lot of interesting assumptions and very interesting debates about where this is going and, well, what will come after globalization? Well, globalization 2.0, of course, and we already have the example of that in the Belt and Road Forum and and all of this narrative that's swirling around. But unless you question the core fundamental assumptions, I think you will be trapped in the pinchers of that dialectic. So that is the point that I wanted to raise today and to caution that I think there is uh, a lot of propaganda to go around, not only on the Uncle Sam side, but also on the side of the BRICS saviors in Russia and China. There is propaganda that is being promoted even in the quasi-independent alternative media, or the supposed erstwhile independent alternative media, that swallows and sometimes regurgitates Chinese and Russian and, and Iranian and other propaganda wholesale because, well, if these are the bad guys, then they must be the good guys. <laughs> Sorry, the real world doesn't work like that. And uh, this is a point that I think is important to stress. There will be a lot of notes in the show notes to go over many of the different points that I've touched on here today, but I hope this at least broaches the conversation and moves it past the point, because I think we are stuck on stupid when it comes to this debate about what version of the New World Order do you want. No thanks. Not for me. That's going to do it for today. James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again in the near future. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's international forecaster editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.